How's it going, buddy? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 159 of X-Lapsed, and uh, hey, it's Hellions Day, and that is one of our very favorite days. Uh, we're going to hop right on in. This is Hellions number 9, which had an April 2021 cover date. The story's called Funny Games, colon, level 1. Written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia, colors David Curiel, letters VCs Ariana Mar, design Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Amaro Basso White Sabalski, cover price $4, and this one went on sale February 3rd of 2021. Now, before we get into it, um, oh, that, that name of this issue here, Funny Games, huh. Anybody ever see that movie? Uh, you know I don't watch movies, but I have seen bits and pieces of this one, of the original, uh, not, the, not the American remake, though I've, I haven't heard that the American remake is... All that inferior. I, I hear good things about both. I just only saw bits and pieces of the original. It's uh, one of those one of those movies you see on lists of like you know fifty most you know disturbing or messed up movies that you have to see. Which I like reading those articles and I like seeing little bits and pieces from movies. I just can't sit still long enough to watch the entire thing. But Funny Games is definitely deserving of being on those lists here. It's pretty horrifying stuff. Having to do with um, some of the more baser fears uh, that we might have. Things like a uh, home invasion, which, I mean, that's doesn't get much scarier than that. Um, also, the torture of a family in their own home. Uh, these, uh, these poor victims are made to participate in humiliating and painful funny games by the, uh, the intruders here. And I do wonder if there's any significance to using this title. I would have to assume that... Maybe so, um, and we won't flip until to the last page of the issue just yet because that might give some of it away. Now let's get into the issue itself. As we open, it's tea time at Bar Sinister. The Mister is having a cuppa with Jason Wingard, Mastermind, who is a fella I don't think we've seen a whole lot of uh, during this Hoxpox era. And hell, you know, now I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure we've seen much of him since he died of the legacy virus back in the early 90s. He was among the group of psychics, which also reintroduced uh, Amal Farouk during the Empire cash-in. I believe it was Empire number 2. Empire X-Men number 2, I should say. Which uh, was another one of those characters who I felt deserved better treatment for, like, a reintroduction. I mean, Mastermind was a part of some of the most seminal X moments in history. You know, Dark Phoenix and stuff like that. Anyway, after chatting about a scheme that they're planning on putting together, and how stinky Sinister's cape is, uh, we gotta remember that that weirdo Jamie Braddock had just worn it. And from the looks of him, I'm not sure he's the most hygienic uh, character out there. 
Anyway, um, our man, Mr. Sinister, takes a sip, and it turns out that the very, very expensive tea was poisoned. Now, we watch as our man writhes around on the floor, expecting the man who just poisoned him to help him out, before passing out at Wingard's feet. Weird. Uh, Though, you know, I suppose we ought to remember that we're dealing with Mastermind here, so really, who's to say what's real and what's fake, right? Uh, From here, our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters today include Havoc, The Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wild Child, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, and Mr. Sinister. Back to comics, and we shift over to Nanny's, where uh, little Peter's being fitted with his new Orphan Maker armor. And uh, unfortunately, we do not get to see him out of the armor here, so we don't know what's going on under it. Now, as he emerges, he's like in a he's like in a wash, you know, he's like in a plasma thing or something. He complains that the armor hurts because it's too tight. Nanny observes that he's grown and suggests that maybe later, if she has the time, she'll do something about making his armor a little bit more comfortable. Peter wants her to do it now because, I mean, dude's in quite a bit of pain. To which, Nanny threatens not to do it at all. Peter apologizes and follows her into the adjoining room on her ship. Now this is where she's keeping that baby right bot that she found last issue. She tells Peter to leave her alone while she changes because, uh, well, he's too big to watch her change anymore. Ew. Scene shift to Purgatory. Now I didn't realize that the Hellions HQ had a name, though I... I'm kind of starting to find out I'm not nearly as perceptive as I thought I were. Anyway, they're in the midst of training. Havoc is doing some bench presses when he's approached by Empath, who offers to spot him. And by spot him, he means use his power to make it seem as though he's pushing down on the bar, which rightly ticks Alex off. To which, Empath says he's just trying to nudge Havoc enough so that the fun him comes out meaning the Alex that we saw go ape back in Hellions number one before he joined the team, or before the team was even put together. Alex tells Manuel to bug off and leaves. Now off to the side, Grey Crow tells Wildchild that it's time to eat, which causes Kyle to lash out and take a swipe at him. Grey Crow holds him at bay and comments that Wildchild hasn't found his she-wolf yet. You see, Wild Child really wants to start mating since his return to the living. It seems as though the object of his affection, or erection, I suppose, might be Quanan. John tells him he's gotta relax. Quanan then interrupts to inform the team that they just got a new assignment because there's been an incident. And so we shift over to the point where our team are being addressed by Stick in the Mud Sage in her April O'Neil trench coat. She goes to show them some footage from the New York City Krakoan Gateway from that morning, where Mr. Sinister was attacked and abducted by agents of Zeno. Now, Zeno is, uh, of course, that Court of Owls knockoff crew that uh, we see over in X-Force, of course. The Hellions, upon hearing that their leader's been kidnapped, well, they laugh and laugh and laugh. It's really quite a a funny scene here. Um, If you remember how we talk about Things like comic timing. Uh, Zeb and Steven definitely have it here. Sage is annoyed that the team, excluding Quanan, who's always serious, are, you know, having this laugh. Again, she does. She goes to show them this uh, footage, but to her surprise, it's gone. Now, we'll eventually find out that there was never, you know, any footage to begin with since, well, you know, mastermind. Sage tells the team that Professor X is adamant that they go and retrieve their missing leader, and Quanan agrees to do the thing. 
Info page. It's a memo from Sage to presumably the Quiet Council making the case for the Hellions to undertake this mission. It's pretty clear here that she's being manipulated by Mastermind as it speaks at length about how well the Hellions' rehabilitation is going. And, I mean, how much they love their leader, Mr. Sinister, and want to see him return safely. This memo is stamped approved, and so away we go. Next stop, New York City. Our team emerges from a gateway. Empath notes that things seem a bit frosty between Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Peter says she ain't his nanny anymore and nearly spills the beans on her new Wrightbot baby. She hushes him before he can, however. He also says he's going by Pete now instead of Peter, which Empath thinks is really, really cool. Sarcastically, of course. They meet with Wingard, who was their point of contact for this mission. He welcomes them to New York and guides them over to a waiting limousine. During the ride, Nanny and Call Me Pete argue a bit more to the befuddlement and entertainment of their teammates. Quinan chats up Mastermind, and that's when the other shoe drops. Suddenly, the Hellions are no longer in a limousine. Now they're on a boat. Then, they're on a plane. Quinan realizes that Wingard is, uh, you know, screwing with them and goes to stab him with her psychic blade. But she's frozen before she can do anything. Mastermind reminds them all that he's in control here. He's in charge of their perception and their reality. He's basically their god in this moment. He tells them that they have absolutely no idea what's real. I mean, for instance, was the sage that sent them on this mission real? Was their mission to the home for foundlings real? Was their time spent in Araco real? Hell, is Krakoa real? Is anything real? It's actually pretty great. Uh, Great Crow and Havoc, they go to attack, but John's gun just melts in his hands, and Havoc's, you know, energy blasts, they turn into birds. So, uh, wildly ineffective, I suppose. Now, next thing we know, the Hellions are free-falling from the sky, and then they smash down to the ground in bloody puddles. Then, reality sets in. The Hellions are just KO'd, having been put through the mental ringer by Mastermind. Then we're introduced to our actual party host and the guy Wingard is working for, a man called Arcade. Now he's accompanied by, I think, Ms. Locke? Is she still a thing? It's that, that woman with really weird bangs. It's her. Um, unless there's another woman with really weird bangs and uh, I'm just a little out of the loop. But we see that Arcade's here with the woman with the very weird bangs and also that he's got Mr. Sinister held captive. We close out with a Nightcrawler quote, and we're out of here. Next episode, King in Black colon Marauders, number one. So we're getting back into the King in Black story, and I've done a little research on the King in Black story, and it looks like we're going to be visiting it a few times more than I expected to, because, uh, well, there's a little story in Savage Avengers that's going on that uh, might just warrant our attention. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. For now... Let's talk about this wonderful issue of Hellions here. I mean, first, I mean, holy smokes, are we actually getting some classic X-villains in our X-Men stories again? I mean, X-Men characters versus Arcade and Mastermind? I mean, I can't say they were ever my favorite, but wow, how refreshing is this that they're not, not fighting just armored Russians or guys in suits? I mean, that's just fantastic. Or, you know, fantasy characters with swords. Um, let's take this apart bit by bit here because I don't have, like, a main takeaway for this one. This was just a series of really, really good scenes that, uh, 
you know, we talk when we when we cover X Factor. Uh, one of the things that I really cheerlead for that book is the fact that every character in the book gets a moment. And I mean, not every book does that. Even the books we like, not all of them do that. Um, I mean, a book like Marauders that we all we all really really like. We don't always get a scene with Pyro. We don't always get a scene with Iceman. We don't always get a scene with Bishop. So there are characters in those in that book that just serve to show up when they show up, right? Here, everybody gets a moment, and uh, it's just like X Factor, where everybody in that book, all the the entire cast, gets a chance to get their stuff in. I mean, let's start with Sinister. Um, Sinister here, he's got his little uh, tea party with Mastermind here And they managed to fit in a whole little aside about the cape And you know, when we started this volume here And uh, we were, actually when we started, I believe it might have been one of the Hoxpox issues uh, You know, House of X or Powers of X Where Sinister and his cape were kind of a thing, you know Sinister's fancy cape, how much he loved this cape And how much uh, everybody really coveted this cape, or at least he thought so and initially, I thought it was annoying. Like, all the cape talk felt like a pandering sort of, like, cheap pop to play up sinister sassiness. Like, the kind of the kind of scenes that I would refer to as, like, retweet bait. It's like, haha, lol, random sort of thing here. But I gotta admit, I'm really, really digging it at this point here. Um, just for the attachment he has to this thing... Um, Mastermind says it smells, and he's like, yeah, I know, but I could put it to air. I could let it air out, but that would mean I couldn't, I wouldn't be wearing it. I mean, that's just hilarious that he is that um, enamored with his ridiculous cape. It really just speaks to to the sinister that we're getting to know and love here. I, I really thought that was cool. Um, Orphan Maker. Orphan Maker was the, the character we saw in the next scene here. Um, got some questions. I'm not sure how old Peter, or I guess Pete, is supposed to be. I don't know if that's something that's commonly known. Um, before he died in Arako or in Amenth, or wherever he died, was he actually a child or a preteen? Like, was that what he was? Was he a child in armor? And now since he's come back and he's bigger, does that mean he's like a late teen or maybe a young adult? I don't know. I mean, if that's the case... It kind of makes his uh, relationship with Nanny all the more horrific, doesn't it? Um, I mean, if he was a child, um, let, let's let's play this th- this thing through here. If Orphan Maker was a child, and if that's really how this is going down, did the Quiet Council know this when they assigned him to go on these weird missions with Mister Sinister? Did they knowingly send? This broken child off into a very, very dangerous, um, violently therapeutic situations? I don't know, but it's uh, troubling if that is the case. Um, now, Nanny changing her egg costume. And I take this to mean that Nanny is able to get out of her costume. Can't say if that's a new wrinkle or something that we, you know, that's already been established. Um... It's just another reminder I gotta get on the X-Lapsed Origins Nanny and Orphan Maker series of articles pretty damn quick here. Uh, Havoc. Havoc and his fun self. I mean, this is one of the uh, biggest mysteries in this book, right? Havoc's mental situation. We don't know. I mean, we've got our theories about it here. Um, Evan has discussed whether or not maybe malice is involved. I've considered maybe um, 
Maybe he's not as broken as he's being led to believe he is And is being put through this uh, Through these situations with the Hellions In order to break him for some sort of reason Which I, I really can't figure out why they would do it But uh, you never know, right? Um, I'm glad to see that this is getting some attention uh, Because this is one of those things that could easily fall off the radar here But uh, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing how it eventually plays out here wasn't a long scene, wasn't a huge scene, but just the exchange he had with Empath was good enough for me. It was good enough to really just let that subplot, you know, bubble in the background, as uh, as we were wont to say. Uh, Grey Crow being the sort of, uh, so in a way, a sort of a keeper of Wildchild here. He, Wildchild kind of bounces between him and Quanan in as far as who he'll, you know, who he'll kneel for, who he'll heal for, I should say. Uh, wild child feeling as though he's perceived as weak, which in his current state of wanting to sort of come across as an alpha, or maybe he has like a primal need to be an alpha. Uh, we hear about the she wolf that he wants, which I think is supposed to be Quanan here. I think Quanan is who he's got the proverbial hot pants for, but his perception that he feels like others find him weak is. A kind of self-awareness I don't think he had before dying in a month. So I, I, that shows great you know, maturing of the character, where before he was more primal and bestial, where here he's, so, he's self-aware enough to where he realizes that he's looked at differently than the other members of the team. I really like that as a way of growing the character, and I think that it opens up a lot of interesting possibilities moving forward. Now let's talk Quanon here. Um, we had that meeting with the Hellions and Sage, where the Hellions kind of giggle at the fact that their, you know, beloved leader is uh, is missing or has been abducted. And as you know, Quanon has been known to do for this series, she is taking things seriously here. She knows that uh, without Sinister, um, she may never see her daughter again, or may never be able to understand what happened to her daughter. And so it's in her best interests to take this uh, mission as seriously as possible and get Sinister back as safely as possible and as quickly as possible. I thought that was really well done here, though I did love the rest of the team just, like, really having a laugh <laughs> at Sinister being kidnapped or abducted or whatever it was. Now, Sage, despite not being, you know, a core member of this Hellions book, uh, I feel like she was the right character to use for this situation. She was really the only character we could use for the situation in that uh, she had this information she needed to pass along, but it was gone. And it troubled her that it was gone because, I mean, she's sage. She's super anal about a lot of things here. And the fact that somebody was able to, to her mind, uh, you know, break into her system or break the code and erase footage or delete footage, it really got under her skin here. But... Kind of just uh, let it go because we don't know what's real and what's fake here. We don't know how much control she's under or how much control anybody's under in this book, which is just another really, really good part about it here. And I wonder if there's some sort of a Hellfire connection here. Uh, you know, Jason Wingard, a member of the Hellfire Club. Sage was Tessa in the Hellfire Club. She was a mole of Professor X back in the day, retroactively, of course, but... I do wonder if there's going to be any sort of Hellfire connection at play here. Uh, that could be an interesting path to take. Now, finally, Mastermind's illusions. And not only the fact that the characters don't know what's real, but neither do we. Like, were they ever in a limousine? Were they ever in New York City? 
Did they ever have a meeting with Sage? Or was uh, Sage just a character that Mastermind knew they would trust and made them visualize it? The fact that he asks those questions of the team makes you think that they were thinking it, or are now thinking about it, and they don't know what's real. Um, I think that was very, very well done, and I don't know what his deal is, or his arrangement is with Arcade, but uh, I'm certainly looking forward to finding out what that is. I just can't tell you how fun it is to actually have um, classic X-Men villains here for the first time in, in quite a while, it feels. It's refreshing, and uh, I mean, this book is great all the time, but here um, it takes the old traditional X-Men uh, formula and kind of turns it on its ear, and uh, overall just a really, really strong book here. Uh, I say it every time we cover this book, if you're not reading Hellions, read Hellions. <laughs> you won't uh, you won't be uh, disappointed, I can almost assure you of that, but uh, that's all I gotta say about this issue. Before we cut out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here. And we're actually going to be talking about Hellions for both of our uh, letters today. We're going to start with Damien talking about Hellions number eight. He says, Hi, Chris. I've fallen a bit behind because of various real-life stuffs. I hope this finds you well. I'm continuing to respond slightly out of order, as Marvel Unlimited seems to have slowed down on releasing the X-Books, but I'll always be able to respond to Hellions because that one gets my actual money. Well, Damien, it's great to hear from you. I hope all is well for you. Uh, he continues, Of course, responding to Hellions is very difficult. How many ways can I say that I love this comic? It's wonderful, and I can't wait to see what happens next. That is the problem, isn't it? Um, it's sometimes these books that we love just so much that it's hard to say anything about, because outside of the gushing, I mean, what else can you do? Because this is just a wonderful book. It's fun Every time out, it's just really, really strong stuff here. Uh, Damien continues, Some very interesting stuff in the feedback section of this episode. Every single, every single thing you said about creators on social media made sense. It could harm sales to pre-block someone who likes your work through a blockchain, but I still can't fault creators for using them. Social media is very intimate. It follows you through every single part of your life. A personal account far exceeds your working life, and therefore I think it exceeds the demands of your professionalism. I think it could be psychologically damaging to read certain kinds of responses online. Blockchains seem like a reasonable protection to me. You specifically mentioned following Ethan Van Skyver as the kind of thing that might get someone blocked, and I think it's important to note how racist, homophobic, transphobic, and misogynistic his Twitter is. At the point when people were using blockchains against his followers, they would have been fully aware that he was leading hate campaigns against other creators and editors. You were not accidentally following a racist homophobe, as he was open about his hatred. Now, this is where I think I might have, uh, comics godwinned myself. Um, I probably shouldn't have mentioned Ethan Vanskyver as an example here, because he is kind of the... He's kind of the debate-ender, isn't he? He's kind of the extreme of the extreme here. Um... But the fellow we're talking about in question here, Al Ewing here, um, he was blocking people that were following people that aren't even in comics here. And uh, we won't go too deep into that because that's divisive and dicey and it's uh, something I don't like anything of. <laughs> so we'll just not do that here. Um, Damien continues, No matter how public a figure, you, are still, you still have a right to protect yourself from seeing hate speak. I don't, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. I agree 100%. I, and I'm projecting here. I just don't think Ewing is doing anything. He's, I don't think he's protecting himself from anything. 
I think this is kind of a making a passive-aggressive statement against people who uh, might have a different worldview than his, and, and not, not even including things like hate, just things that disagree with his own worldview. I'm not a political guy. Um, I haven't really wanted to vote for any president that's been president since I was old enough to vote for president. I'm really just not a political guy in, in the slightest here, but... I think it was Michael Jordan who had once said, um, you know, Republicans buy shoes too. Meaning, like, he's not going to speak out against any one side because it's in his best interest to sell everybody everything he's trying to sell. And I wish there were more creators who were like that here. Whether you uh, lean to the right, lean to the left, you got to realize that there's... There are folks out there with completely opposite worldviews as yours and not predicated in hate, no matter what CNN or Fox News will try to make you believe. So I see his, uh, his deal here as being kind of a passive-aggressive and weak uh, way to uh, deal with things. I'm not a fan of it. And as a content creator and a struggling content creator who spends so much of his free time doing something that so few people care about, <laughs> to, to see that there's someone out there who people want to engage with because they really enjoy his work, blocking them because maybe they voted a different way than he did. And uh, that's just unfortunate to me. I think it's very, very, it's a very sad state of affairs. And just another, uh, just another indictment on how close we are to these creators. We don't need to be. That's kind of all I got to say about that. Um, Damien continues. On to, on to more interesting things here. Um, he says, on to your analysis of the sales figures. I was a little surprised by some of the figures. I expected X-Men to be at the top. It's the lead book, even if it's not the best book, but I was shocked by how high Wolverine was placed. It genuinely is consistently the weakest X-Book, but still is the second highest ordered. I wonder how much of that is comic shop owners ordering based on pre-existing biases and how much reflects customer demand. I suppose it could also be down to Adam Kubert being the only actual superstar artist working on the X-Line. Maybe they think they can sell it to the people who are nostalgic for the 90s. Now, one of the more interesting things about how high Wolverine is placed here, especially, let's look at October's numbers here. This was part of the uh, X of Tens uh, crossover, of course. And Wolverine number 6 was the 11th highest ordered book, um, shipping between 85,000 and 95,000 copies here. Now, that one led right into X-Force, did it not? Or was straight out of X-Force, right? It was one or the other. I don't remember which, which order they were in here. But if we, if we look at this, the X-Force book from that month, it was still pretty high uh, compared to what it was before the crossover, but it only shipped 40, between 48,000 and 53,000. So maybe like half of what Wolverine ordered here. So that tells me that um, there might be some sort of existing bias there because if you were that invested in Wolverine's story, uh, you'd probably buy the X-Force issue that continued it. And the fact that only half as many people did tells you that there's just some, there's still some fight in that old dog, right? There's still some cachet in, uh, in Wolverine for some reason. <laughs> um, uh, Damien continues. I was completely surprised that Cable was at the bottom of the orders, not just because it's a good book, but because I would have expected it to be a more sellable property than New Mutants or Hellions. When I heard it was getting canceled, I presumed it was due to the end of the storyline and not because of low sales. Interestingly enough, and I haven't done a whole lot of research on this, but uh, it seems like Marvel is not even trying to sugarcoat this one. 
This isn't like, oh, well, this is this is the end of Cable's story for now And so we're ending the book This is like, no, nah, it's getting cancelled <laughs> Which just doesn't happen very often Marvel's usually like masters a spin where Oh yeah, this was always meant to be in a nine and a half issue limited series It's very, very strange that here it's just like, nah, it's gone <laughs> It's getting cancelled um, Damien continues Of course, we do have to take all sales figures with a pinch of salt as you repeatedly said, they, these are the shipped numbers. Plenty of comics end up unsold on readers' shelves. Or retailers' shelves, I'm sorry. We also have to consider digital sales. Books that are low sellers in comic shops can sometimes sell exceptionally well digitally. I know that was said of Squirrel Girl, for example. And, of course, the publishers make more profit on digital sales as they don't have to endure the costs of printing and distribution. It's quite difficult to see where the line is as we're not given details, but it is entirely possible that Marvel could generate more income on 500 digital sales than 1,000 physical sales. You mentioned the old 100,000 cancellation figure that used to get bandied about, but the financial model has completely changed since the 80s. Amen. Yes, (laughs) it absolutely has here. Um, We don't have newsstands anymore, for one. Um, And and the funny thing is, it's that that 100,000... Order is kind of a it's kind of a soft number because the newsstand was able to return unsold copies, right? That was the whole purpose of the direct market, was that hey, we have this closed system, but nothing's returnable. And the few times that things have been made returnable, it's been major, major news, like the new 52 or rebirth or stuff like that. So you know, what's, you know, what is it, the bird in the hand or the two in the bush or whatever, right? Uh, with newsstand, sure, you can ship 100,000 copies. They might only sell 30,000 and the rest get their cover ripped off and sent back to Marvel for a refund. But with the direct market, everything is counted as uh, sold, paid for. Whether or not that shows up in a reader's long box, Marvel does not care because they got their money. Uh, the digital figures. Now, this is something that, you know, you mentioned taking things with a grain of salt or a pinch of salt, but with the digital numbers, I think we need the entire shaker. Now, I'm not suggesting that Squirrel Girl isn't selling or wasn't selling huge digitally, but, I mean, these the industry is so, um, hmm, it's got an inferiority complex. And so anytime anything even moderately positive happens, it's shouted from the rooftops. How often do we see a book the day before it even ships? We get a we get an article on Bleeding Cool or CBR or whatever saying that it's sold out and it's gonna be it's gonna be heading to a second print and it's like it hasn't even come out yet. And you know damn straight that you can go to any comic shop in your in your town, city or state the following day and see dozens of copies of this thing on the shelf. How is it sold out? And yet the industry will tell us that it's sold out because it's sold out at the distribution level. Here we have digital sales, but they don't want to share the numbers with us. Something tells me if these digital sales on books like a Squirrel Girl, like a whatever, if they were as phenomenally high as they like us to think they are, we would have solid numbers because they would be shouting these solid numbers from the rooftops. I think about things like, uh, now this isn't digital, but it's, you know, a little similar in that we don't get the numbers for this. The DC giants that were, uh, the DC 100-page giants that were going to all the Walmarts, right? 
All we would hear was the news that you can't find these things anywhere. Walmarts were selling out like crazy. They were just gone. These books were hard to find. They were on eBay for like five times the price. And yet every Walmart I went to had them stacked up as high as they could stack before the the stack fell over. We never got solid numbers on these things. We were just told time and time again how great they were doing until they were quietly canceled, (laughs) you know? I feel like, I felt like then and I feel like now, if there's something worth celebrating, the industry is going to celebrate it. Again, I'm not suggesting that Squirrel Girl isn't doing great in digital or isn't doing great at the bookstores, the few bookstores that are still remaining, but I feel like if it was doing exceptionally well or well enough to justify its existence, we'd have some, we'd have some solid numbers and we don't, we just don't. Um, Damien continues. There's part of me that wishes we got some more information because as someone who works in retail, I love digging into the figures and working out what makes what, but it's probably a good thing that the things are a little, that things are a little more opaque. We know that people stop buying books when they know they're going to be canceled, so it's probably best that we don't know when things are on the verge. The downside is that people look at newly announced books with the expectation that they will probably get canceled and therefore are less likely to invest their time and money. This is definitely a current year comics problem. Um, Marvel and DC both, they've established a pattern of behavior for canceling books for, like, no organic reason. Not especially because sales are low, right? But because they know if they cancel a book at issue six and then follow it up four weeks later with yet yet another number one, it'll sell a bit higher. I mean, it stands to reason. We have the data (laughs) that'll prove that. This is short-term thinking for immediate gain. And this is the worst part about this, is this is the sort of thing we used to all ball up our fists about, but now we're kind of just okay with it. We've been beaten in a submission, and we just accept it, and we play the game. When Marvel cancels, say, Squirrel Girl at issue six, and then four weeks later has the next volume with number one start, and uh, a lot more people go out and buy that number one. It's, uh, they know they know us well enough to know how they can exploit us. And as such, um, the more they do this, uh, the law of diminishing returns is there. The, the, the sales for a number one are going to be better than a number six, but not as much better as it used to be. And I think with every subsequent relaunch, that that's going to narrow even more as we move forward here. But I feel like comics are kind of the uh, they're kind of the entertainment equivalent of a of like a circus now where they're just going to like up stakes and, and get out of town one day. We're just going to all be like, where did comics go? Oh, they left, you know, because it's just not going to be a viable uh, outlet for uh, Disney and or Warner Brothers anymore. Uh, Damien continues, ultimately, it seems supremely unfair that the best books are not the best sellers, but then I suppose we can't all agree on what are the best books. Anyway, until Nanny's robot baby marries the Scarlet Witch, make mine X-lapsed. Did we just spoil WandaVision? Whatever a WandaVision is? I I don't know. Maybe we did. But you're right. Um, It is unfortunate that uh, books like Cable or Marauders or Hellions, you know, the books that we enjoy the most on this show, or I should say I enjoy the most on the show. I don't want to speak for everybody, but it kind of stinks that... uh, they, you know, it's not reflected in the sales charts here, and it's funny. I was uh, when I started looking at the sales charts, I decided to go through my own archives to see if there is any consistency with uh, the sales of the books here, and, and I try to take into account like, 
you know, people who have listened to this show for a while, I mean, we're up to uh, like almost 160 episodes here. That's what, like uh, at least 100 hours of this program has been, uh, you know, committed to digital tape here. But I part of me wonders, like, hey, if I'm more positive about a book and people know that I'm more positive about it, they're more likely to listen. Or if it's, you know, like a Fallen Angels Day back in the day, or an Excalibur Day, where I'm more likely to not like it, are people less likely to listen? Or are they more likely to listen to hear me complain about it? Part of me wonders, like, what goes into listening? And I tried to look to see if there's any sort of pattern here um, as it relates to sales and, uh, I guess, book visibility, uh, interest in the book in general. And there is a little bit of correlation there. On Marauder's Day, a book I love talking about. On Hellion's Day, a book I love talking about. Listens are lower than they would be on a Wolverine Day. Or on an X-Men Volume 5 Day. It's very, very strange that uh, the sales or the downloads or listens almost echo the sales. And I suppose it stands to reason that it would, but it's... uh, I don't know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Cable Day doesn't get a whole lot of listens, comparatively speaking. It's it's interesting. It's very interesting. But I want to thank you so much for uh, writing in, Damien. I've missed hearing from you. I hope everything is good with you, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Uh, next up, our friend Andrew Franklin also talking about Hellions number 8. He says, There's some saying regarding storytelling and not just giving the audience what they think they want. I was ready for for a just-like-old-times return of Cameron Hodge, but what we got was even better than that. Zeb Wells does a great job of bringing Hodge back in a way that honors all his stories before this. The immortality, the techno-organic virus, and what I guess is some lingering religious zealotry from his time with the Purifiers, something I had to look up because I didn't read that period of X-Men, and the fire and brimstone stuff confused me. The funny thing there is I know, I'm pretty sure I read... Uh, Hodge being with the Purifiers Was that during the Who was that, Kyle and Yost X-Force run, I think that was it I totally forgot about it, and I just assumed that they Conflated him with uh, Reverend Striker <laughs> But, uh, no, that's an excellent Point here um, Very good job of bringing Everything together here, it's almost Reminiscent of, and I mean this is Totally a tangent, but uh, The Keith Giffen Doom Patrol. If anybody is familiar with that run here, he was given the task of making everything that happened with the Doom Patrol, including a full-scale reboot at the hands of John Byrne, make sense (laughs) in a linear way. And he was able to pull it off. Uh, It's too bad that, like, you know, a year and a half into his run, DC decided to flush that cosmic toilet and uh, hit us with the new 52. But Andrew continues... In keeping with the history of Hodge as this constantly changing antagonist, I like the idea of the Hodge mind as a corrupted code infecting the smiley robots. I hope this wasn't just a one-off thing. Having Hodge as this abstract machine infection that helps drive the mutant machine dystopia we've seen is a cool use of his character, and it works nicely with the AI antagonism that was set up during Hoxpox. 100%. 100% true. I mean, it just makes so much sense. Uh, Hodge's connection to the phalanx, um... Just everything about him, his immortality, as you mentioned here, uh, stands to reason that he could still present a threat to our characters uh, a thousand years on. So I'm actually surprised it's taken him this long to get him in the book, and I'm also kind of surprised that this isn't in the main flagship book of this line here. It's uh, off in Hellions, which, as we just mentioned, not as many people are reading as they perhaps should be. Andrew continues... 
My read of the scene where the smiley robot hesitates in killing Psylocke was that the robot scan showed them that the genetic difference between mutant and human is so small that there really isn't much of a difference at all. I like this inclusion for two reasons. One, it was the first showing that the Smiley's AI didn't inherently hate the mutants, and it was only the Hodgemind's illogical racism that caused them to. Two, it cuts both ways, and although the mutants see themselves as distinct from humans, they're really not. I like this because I personally do not like the mutants and humans are a separate species view. And for the whole Krakoan era so far, I've taken it to be the creative team's view on the subject. Maybe this is a little seed for the audience that while the mutants see themselves as distinct from humans, they really aren't. And that's a great point here. Um, we have talked a bit about um, the you know weird ethnocentrism that's growing in the Krakoan era here, where the mutants see themselves as so different from the humans that they no longer wish to follow man's law, right? Uh, things like that. I do like this as something that goes both ways here. Um, the robot doesn't see them as being different. Humans certainly see the mutants as being different, as being lesser than, right? But nowadays, the mutants also see the humans as being lesser than. It's not just the bad guys calling, them, calling humans flat scans anymore. Now we have just this weird... Ethnocentrism stemming from uh, all of the uh, all the characters on Krakoa. So very very interesting. I do hope that this is something that gets picked up again uh, somewhere down the line here. Uh, and wraps up with all in all, just another great issue of the series. So until we get the dramatic resurrection of Clive, <laughs> make mine X lapsed. Yeah, we do. Alas, poor Clive. How how little we we knew ye. It's a it's always a sad day when Sinister loses a crony in it. But thank you so much for writing in about our good old Hellion series here. It's always so much fun to hear from you and to talk about this book. But that's where we're going to leave it today. If anyone out there would like to talk to us about Hellions or anything else, please feel free to do so. You could find me quite easily on the internet. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, and you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com, where due to a uh, hellacious uh, few days, I have not been able to uh, continue the X-Lapsed Origin series as a daily thing. It's still it's still happening. It's still going to be happening very, very soon. It's just uh, it hasn't been a great few days here. So um, I apologize for any inconvenience, but we'll be back uh, with... Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian soon enough over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, you can also check out xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com if all you want to see is the xlapsed stuff because that's where a lot of it is. Or all of it is, I should say. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. You can chat us up over at 90s X-Men on Facebook. A lot of fun conversation going on there right now as we speak. Or as I speak, I suppose. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation sites and devices and all that, all that hoo-ha. If you want to hear it, it's there for you. Thousands of hours of comics commentary. And I think that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for letting me be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.